Church, let's uh, pray. Lord, how our hearts have been encouraged by singing praises, by hearing of baptism stories of grace that have been visited upon people, and now we commit our way to you and pray that you take the Word of God and apply it to our understanding. Give us wisdom, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a, a short story about a guy named Rip Van Winkle. It was written in 18, 1814. It's about a man who was uh, married to a regrettable woman. In fact, Washington Irving describes her as being a woman who was cantankerous and nagging day after day. And so uh, Rip Van Winkle was kind of a lazy guy and didn't do his job. And so they kind of fed off each other in a very negative way. But he left one day and just to get away and he went to the Catskill Mountains, supposedly, with his dog and with his gun. And he met some people dressed in a very different fashion, ornately, and they played what we would call a bowling game. And they also drank some beverages. And Rip Van Winkle passed out, fell asleep, and he awoke. And when he awoke, he looked down and his clothes were threadbare. He couldn't find his dog. And uh, he, he looked at his gun and it was crusted over with rust. And so he sat there with his beard, clothes, no dog, gun, and very confused. He got up and he went into their little city where he had come from, little village. He'd recognized no one. And they asked him, uh, who did you vote for in the last election? He said, I didn't vote. I'm a loyal subject of George III, and they almost, you know, took a fist against him. And then he looked up on the tavern, and instead of a picture of King George III, it was a picture of somebody he'd never heard of, a guy named George Washington. And somebody said, what's your name? He says, my name is Rip Van Winkle. And they said, we've got a Rip Van Winkle who lives here. And they went and got him, and they brought him in. He looked like Rip Van Winkle, and he was Rip Van Winkle Jr., and as they talked and understood things, Rip Van Winkle realized he'd been asleep for 20 years. What's a short story about being asleep and letting time go by? When I look at that, though, I think of the church. And I think that we have um, a tendency sometimes to talk about issues that were really pertinent 40 and 50 years ago and in the present context to not talk about issues that are really on the radar of our culture today. I call that the Rip Van Winkle effect for the church. And we, we've got to think well. We've got to think with courageous conviction. Let me give you a couple of examples. So 1996, the U.S. Senate passed and President Clinton signed into law the Defense of Marriage Act. And Clinton said, I'm, I'm, I'm signing this, but I don't think it's necessary because everybody knows that marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, we don't need to have this as a law. But it was passed into law 1996, 2013, just a few years ago. In the Obergefell decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said that same-sex marriage is now the law of the land, overturning the Defense of Marriage Act. And, and with that has come a Pandora's box, you know, Greek mythology, attendant issues that are just in our face right now. And there's a little paragraph from a guy named Gene Veith in his brand new book called Post-Christian. And what he's saying is that, is that 
1996, he wrote a book that was entitled Post-Christian America. And he said, I had to rewrite the book because everything has changed so fast. He says, in 1995, we were dealing with X, and now we're dealing with X, Y, and Z. And so he says, things have changed so dramatically, you can't keep up. For example, the issue of, he says, we're now dealing with transgenderism, gender fluidity, gender dysphoria. And, and, and this is basically a saying, says that you choose your sex, your, your sex at birth is not innately who you are, even though the Bible says very clearly, male and female is part of the goodness of God's creation. So in France today, they passed a law three years ago that in the public school of France, you can no longer use the antiquated terms mother and father. You have to say parent one and parent two. I don't know which one comes first, mom or dad, but anyway, parent one and parent two. In our state, I used to, when I've done marriages in the past, there would be a bar that said groom, and one here says bride. Now it says person A, person B. In British Columbia, Canada, right above our northwest states, three years ago, there was a test case that involved a, a 13-year-old that said, she said, I've been identifying as a male since age 11. I want to begin replacement surgery, replacement hormone treatments. I'm trying to keep this PG-13, so please bear with me. And so the mom said, well, maybe, but the dad said, absolutely not. And the pediatrician and counselors from the school took the dad to court, and the judge ruled that at that time, a 13-year-old girl could choose her gender without parental guidance or influence. So unbelievable. He sued and went to the higher court, and the higher court sustained the lower court ruling, and they released this statement. It was in the Toronto newspaper. It says, misgendering a person using the incorrect name for them and trying to persuade them not to undertake gender-affirming care are forms of family violence. In other words, if, if you call your daughter, which he was doing, you call your daughter her name, her birth name, and not her chosen male name, which the dad was doing, this family violence. And the one on said, and you can be severely fined. And at that time, she's, she was 15. She's now 16. So, so I say that not to get involved in this discussion necessarily, but to say this, that when Sarah and I raised our children 20 years ago, what parents are facing today is incredibly more difficult than anything we faced. The, the goalposts continue to be moved. The, the issues continue to be redefined. So, so, so what I'm saying to you parents and to us grandparents and to you leaders and who love the next generation, to teachers, to counselors, to each other, that it is incredibly difficult in this culture to, to live with the standard of godliness. I, without going into detail, we're not living in Mayberry, RFD. We're living in Bangkok, Thailand. Bangkok is, a, is an incredible, sensual place. It's just, it's just filled with, with, with difficulties. We act like we're living in Mayberry RFD, and there's got, we've got Barney and Opie and Andy and B and Gomer and Goober and the whole gang. We're not there, guys. Or to quote another movie, we're no longer in Kansas. So I'm saying to parents, it's difficult, and you better think well if you're serious about the next generation. 
raising them in the way of the Lord. So 2007, 2007, 2008, the iPhone came out. And um, it's, it's changed everything. It's changed the way we learn. It's changed the way we think. It's unleashed wonderful information at their fingertips. It's unleashed a, a plague of pornography. I mean, it, 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 it's dramatically changed everything. And that's just the last few years. It's hard to fashion or even fathom what happened before 2007. Did you know today in the United States of America, 330 million, that there'll be 6 billion text sent? 6 billion. B, billion. That, 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 that there's, and I've done some research and I've talked to younger people because my, my age, we don't do this stuff. There's something called Snapchat that is very popular, especially with young people. If you have Snapchat, which you can give a message or a picture and it's there for a while, then it goes into the atmosphere. Supposedly, if you, Snapchat, if you have Snapchat, the average person spends 50 minutes a day on Snapchat and sends 34 messages. That's just amazing to me. And let me just say this, okay? No one needs Snapchat, especially young people. Especially, the church today, right now, is being absolutely convulsed with a situation I mentioned last week with Ravi Zacharias ministry. And it traces back to anonymity. I despise anonymity. You know? First of all, there's no anonymity. God sees everything. Let's just be honest. But, 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 but just, just I'll say that. I said, I'm going to go on, parents. Your kids don't need an iPhone until they're 18 to go off to college. And even then, sometimes it's good not to be able to get in touch with you. It gives you a break. gives them a break. But read all these books on, on iPhones and technology and everybody across the board with a ubiquitous voice. Believers and non-believers say it's, 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 a, it's a technological you know, octopus has grabbed us way too fast. But anyway, that, things have changed. That's my point. And if we're going to have convictional courage, we've got to deal with the text. I'm going to read and give you four points out of today. So here are the scripture. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, the last part of verse 12 through verse 13. The Apostle Paul talks about developing sea legs and about being a man of convictional courage. And he says, but I am not ashamed of the gospel for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So point number one, if I'm to live with convictional courage, I've got to be able to stand and say with the apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able that to guard my life, my ministry, the gospel, he is able to guard that which I have entrusted unto him until that day. In other words, there's a, con a confident entrusting of believing in the reality and the glory and the goodness of God. When Paul closes the book of 2nd or 1st Thessalonians, this is what he writes, chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, he says, now, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole body, soul, and spirit be found blameless at the coming of the Lord. Now listen to the next verse. Listen, 
He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. So God's faithful, and he'll do it. So you, you, you say, you would say to one another, may God himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole body, soul, and spirit be found blameless at the coming of Jesus. And you go, you got to be kidding me. You look at yourself and say, boy, I, you got to be kidding me. You look at yourself and say, really? But then he says this, but he who's called you is faithful and he will surely do it. So our strength comes from the indwelling, reigning, glorious Jesus. The book of Colossians. Paul says, and we, we teach every man and we warn every man that we may present every man complete in Christ um, with our wisdom. And then he says this, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see that? I, I, I struggle, I labor to see this happen as I taste the power that Jesus pours in me. See, it's all about the indwelling power of Christ. And he talks about true wisdom in chapter 2, and he says this, verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. So it's all about being in Christ, in union with Christ. So see, the, the, the confidence I have does not come from my ability or the people around me. It comes from the good shepherding grace of Jesus that's poured into my life. So if I want to be, have convictional courage, I've got to have this sense of confident and trusting. Charles Spurgeon was a British pastor in London, wonderfully used to the Lord, died in 1892. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, says he was with one of the finest Christians he knows who loves the Lord. And as they were walking down the street, the man stopped and he said, Brother Spurgeon, I'm, I look at this beautiful city, London, and I can't help but think that in the future these streets will flow with blood because of disobedience to the Lord and, and that atheism will be, will be the law of the land. I have such a horrid picture of the future and Spurgeon said this. He said, I reached out and I, I touched him. And he said to him, he says, dear, dear brother, you have forgot one thing. God is not dead. God isn't dead. He's alive. I think sometimes we need to look at each other and say, hey, guys, listen. God is God. He's going to build his church and we go through hard times, good times, in between times. Absolutely. But God is God, and he's going to build his church, and he's going to use people who have a confident and trusting spirit unto him. So that's, if you, if you want to live with courageous conviction according to the Scripture, it's confident and trusting. Number two, I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day. So, so the second point is, if I'm going to have courageous convictions, I've got to think often about the day of the Lord. I've got to think frequently about the second coming of Christ. I've got to think frequently about the fact that my life is limited and I will die one day. And I've got to also tell you that it is easy to go through days or week without stopping to intentionally think about the fact 
that there is a coming day when God will judge the heavens and the earth and he will give to his righteous people eternal heaven and to those who know him not eternal hell and we'll have resurrection bodies and new heavens, new earth, feasting, celebration, joy unbounded, no sin, clear vision of Jesus, all glorious, all good, all filled of passion, all filled of energy, all forever and ever and ever and ever. And this life is a vapor and it's gone. And if I'm to have conviction, I've got to say that with Paul, I'm convinced that, that the sufferings of this present time cannot be even in any way compared to the glory that's coming. So, so I would say, brothers and sisters, think about that day. Think about the day of your death. It's so, so amazing to me. I'll talk to people and they'll say, yeah, have you heard this person died? I said, yeah. He, he, he had stage four cancer and he died. And they'll say, oh, yes. He said, I'm shocked. I'm going, well, why, why are we shocked? I mean, he's going to die. He's going to die. She'll die. So in Psalm 17, I was thinking, meditate on this in, in Psalm 17. Psalm 17 is a prayer against, Lord, help me stand against wicked men. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. And then, and then he says this. It's really soft. It's an incredible statement. He says, he says, deliver me from wicked people, verse 14, from, the, from, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of this world whose portion is in this life. And he says this. This is verse 14. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, he says, next verse, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And what the psalmist is saying is because of God's common grace, he gives gifts to all men and women, even men and women who curse his name, have children, and their children bless them, and even men who curse his name have 401ks. And when they die, they can pass that on to the coming generation. And the psalmist says, and that is as good as it gets. <laughs> he says, but as for me, I have the hope of beholding you in glory and goodness and power. It's glorious. You see, if people are here today without the Lord, this is as good as it gets. Well, think about yesterday when it was cloudy and rainy. This is really a beautiful day. As good as it gets. For thus, us who know Jesus by faith, and when we died and we're with the Lord, this is potentially as bad as it gets. So the psalmist is saying, just think about this. Yeah, they have children, and they have health to a degree, and they have an inheritance, but that's as good as it gets. I think of Colossians, and that, that day Colossians 1 says this. It says, we remember your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints uh, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I think, say to myself, you know, self, do you want to have more faith in the reality of Christ and step out more, walk in the light? Do you want to really love people well? Then Think about the glory of heaven. If I'm going to have convictional courage, I will think about that day. 
Thirdly, there's a priceless pattern, a glorious pattern. Here's the pattern. He says, follow the pattern that you have heard from me and the faith and the love that are found in Christ Jesus. Follow the pattern that you have found or seen in me, this priceless pattern. There's a statement in the worship guide from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it says this regarding the pattern. The pattern he's talking about is the gospels and the apostolic message. This is the pattern right here. This is the pattern. So the statement from Westminster Confession is Christ would have us be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of, no, this is not it. It's down here. We must carefully understand the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or, here's it, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. In other words, what, what the divines were saying is that, is that everything we need for life and godliness is here, and as we stay here and live here and think here, we'll make decisions that are consequentially in line with the heart of the Father. So everything we need is here and or deduced from here. So these are, this is a, a glorious pattern that gives freedom. That's interesting. In, in our culture today, people say, I want to be free, which means I want to cast off all restraints. But the Bible says that we're going to be, Romans 6, a slave of one thing or another. A slave of unrighteousness that leads to death or of righteousness that leads to life. Nobody's free. I mean, free. So I'm, I've had the opportunity of, of driving in high mountains in several, on several continents, a couple of continents. And so, sometimes in a bus, sometimes I'm driving. And uh, I've got to tell you, when I am driving in the high mountains and there's a sheer drop and there are no guardrails, I think to myself, I really like guardrails. I do. I like guardrails. And as I'm driving with no guardrails, I'm, I'm, I'm having this thought. I went to one country in northern Africa. We rented a car by a group. By, by, it was kind of a back alley car rental, so it was cheap. But it was called um, Camel Rent-A-Car, which is, you know, so I'm going, okay. So you're driving, and you're hoping that... Camel Rent-A-Car has good brakes on their cars. And you're hoping that the steering mechanism doesn't quit working. Because you're high in the mountains and there's no guardrails. And see, people who say freedom with no constraints and no direction, they make up their own, are, are, are driving in the high mountains without guardrails and their steering mechanism is broken and their brakes aren't working. See, if you read Proverbs, Time after time, Proverbs says, come in here and get wisdom. Come on in here and get wisdom. Here's the, the, the prelude. Whoever is simple, see, let him come in here and get wisdom. The door's wide open. Whoever is simple, come in here and get wisdom. In other words, to get wisdom, I've got to stand up and say, I am simple and I need guidance. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. In other words, say, I need it. I need grace. So, so if, if I'm to have convictional courage, I've got to be someone who follows the priceless pattern of Scripture. 
So there's a guy named Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge was one of the great theologians of American history, taught at Princeton Seminary for five, four or five decades, uh, died in the 1880s. Charles Hodge was a young professor, and he got a, a, a brief sabbatical of three or four months, and he decided to go to Europe and just really interview some of the leading theologians of Europe in the 1820s. 1830s. And so Charles Hodge goes to Europe and he's interviewing these people on the continent. He goes to Germany and France primarily. And they say to him in Germany, said, there's a, there's a guy, there's a guy you've got to meet. He's kind of the guiding light of a lot of people. His name is Friedrich Schleimacher, which is really a cool German name, Friedrich Schleimacher. And uh, so, so Hodge was excited to meet Schleimacher. He met him, spent some time with him, Listened to him preach several times, and this was Schleimacher's deal. Schleimacher came out with this thought. He said, you know, really, you don't need to worry about definitions and systematics. You need to just understand that the necessary thing in your life is that you have an experience in your heart, in your life, in your psyche. He didn't use that word then, but in, in, in your person, have an experience with God, however you may define him. And so Hodge interviewed him, listened to him, talked to him, and heard him preach. And this is what he said, wrote in his journal. He said, Schleimacher's theology is so vague and indefinite that it is useless. <laughs> it's so vague and indefinite that it's useless. And so you, you look at the scripture, and you go, These are, this is, there's a pattern here. This is God's word. 2005, two guys from Notre Dame did research projects of, of older teenagers in America, what they believed about God, teenagers in and out of the church. They came up with this thing that you've heard about called morally therapeutic deism. And there's five tenets to morally therapeutic deism. When, you, when I studied it, I thought, that's just Schleimacher 200 years later. The, the five tenets, number one, is there is a God who made the heavens and the earth. Bracket, he cannot be defined. Number two, this God wants you to be nice and kind. Number three, the ultimate goal in life is to affirm yourself. Number four, this God can be involved in your life, maybe if you ask him. And number five, when you die, you go to heaven. And, and really, there's, there, there's, there's no definition. It's all some type of, of, of nothingness. And I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, in the year 2021, use definitions there's a pattern here. We need to be biblical, graciously biblical, brokenly biblical, but biblical. And use these definitions. Let me give you an example. Just an example. And be, be careful the way we say things. So if you've been around evangelical churches long, somebody will say something like this. Well, I have accepted Jesus. I don't know what that means. I mean, in reality, I'm, I'm what, really, what does that mean? So in, if you use definitions, I think I've got a slide up here if I can find it, said, um, is that it? No. Here it is. Okay. So, in our, so what I'm saying is that when you speak to people about faith, you say something like this. You say, well, um, I, I came to see that, that sin had separated me from a holy God who loves me. And as I studied the Bible, I heard that, that God became a man and died on the cross for my sin. And so, to receive that gift, I, in repenting trust, turned from self-ways to go God's way. 
repenting trust. See, there's got to be content. We use words all the time. My, my plea is this, that, that, that there's a sound pattern. Let's speak the sound pattern. Let's read the sound pattern. Fourthly, if I'm to be a convictional person of courage, I've got to embrace the fact and rejoice in the fact. He says the, the, the pattern of sound words. Man, I like that. Sound means life-giving, life-producing, that which gives us human flourishing. See, these are sound words that give hope and joy and purpose, and I love it. If, if I'm to be the man I've been called to be, whatever walk I'm in, I've got to be someone who embraces and knows and loves the sound words of the Scripture. Listen to a, a few comments, just two verses on sound words. First of all, 1 Timothy 6, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. These are sound words. Titus 1, describing an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So I'm going, Lord, let me see there is a blessedness and a joy in knowing the Scripture. I think of Psalm 19, uh, uh, the... Uh, the testimony of, of the Lord is, is sure, or is true, reviving the soul. The, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is, is, is true, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are, are right and, and pure, and enlightening the eyes. The precepts of the Lord are right and altogether righteous. I mean, I, I just, I, I want that. And these words are, are sound words that give hope and joy and life flourishing. Now, hear me. I just talked to a dear, just to to a dear person and they're facing a monumental decision in their family. I've talked to other people this week that are just in, in, in difficult places. And, and I, I mean, and, and so often our life is in the balance our decision-making is, is, is difficult. And I, I, would, I, just, I just plead with you in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your work, in your grandparenting, understand that this, these are sound words that give life and hope. Understand that, 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 that in our decision-making that our, our legacy, our Usefulness in the kingdom, our joy in Jesus is always at stake. I love what Lewis says. I just thought about this right before this service. That Lewis says there is no such thing basically as an uh, indifferent day or hour. He says every day or hour is either claimed under the lordship of Christ or counterclaimed by the devil. And I would just plead with you to understand I understand these things. And, and, and to have 
courageous conviction. Now, I'm going to give you an application. So, the first part of 2 Timothy 1 says, fan into flame the gift of God that you've received. So my question is, how do you stay white hot? How do you stay white hot in a culture that is a get along, go along, float through life culture? Or even a culture that is opposed to standards of godliness. How do you stay white hot? And I'm gonna give you one little answer. There are several things I could could talk about. Just mention one thing. I'm gonna talk to you about the importance of the Lord's day. Um, So Vince Lombardi, the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, um, Hall of Fame coach, and also the Washington Redskins, but primarily the Green Bay Packers. Every training season, he would come in, and it was a standing understanding. He would walk into the first meeting with all of his guys with a football under his arm and stand up and say, gentlemen, this is a football. And they would laugh. But then they go through two days of learning once again the techniques of tackling, receiving the ball, so forth and so on. And sometimes as believers, we just need to understand basic building blocks. So, so years ago, we had a guy speak at our missions conference that will be in two weeks I'm so excited about. But his name was Don Cameron Diener. And he was, when he came here, he'd retired. He'd been a missionary for 35 years, mostly in South America, and then with the International Mission Board. And he was a delightful guy. He was, you know, and... He's a good bit older than me at that time, and so I got to spend a lot of time with him. And as I spent time with him, he was just filled with energy and life. And I said, I said, Don, I mean, you talk about your wife with glowing terms. I know you love your kids. And what have you done to be strong in faith in your latter years? What, what, what has gotten you here? And he stopped and said, no one's ever asked me that. But he said, let me, let, me, let me tell you. Let me think about it. He said, okay, I'll, I'll give you one thing. We never miss Sunday school in church. And I went, that's it. And I was waiting. you got to go on a holy pilgrimage to Nepal and climb up into the Himalayas and sit at the feet of a holy man and let him talk to you. Go across broken glass and touch one of the early parchments of, 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 of a copy of the scripture or something. But Sunday school in church, that's what he said. And so I... I just want to talk to you about the Lord's Day. We believe the Lord's Day, Sunday, is a day set apart for refreshment, building up in the faith, and encouragement in Christ. So I would say to you, in a culture where it is hard to think well, we need to really be zealous about the Lord's Day. And I'll say to those of us who are worshiping you know, online that I, I, I pray God hastens the day when we can once again worship with real bodies and a real facility and see real people. And I'm, I'm hoping that day is fast to come. And as soon as you feel comfortable, we would love to have you. We're doing social distancing. We'd love to see you here. Anyway, so the Lord's Day. Let me give you three points. And this is Vince Lombardi. This is a football. Number one, when it comes to the Lord's Day, prepare your heart for worship. Prepare your heart for worship. I mean, go to bed, get some sleep, have your clothes maybe laid out. Be here on time, 
be here with an expectant spirit. Come saying, Holy Spirit, speak to me, minister, teach the things of the Lord. So that. Number two is what? Worship as a family. We said this a few months ago. I said this, that, that, that it is a sorrow to my heart that a young person can go from children's church to middle school to high school and go, go to, their, to the Bible studies that I, I love, our youth ministry, what's going on, and never go to worship. Never sit under the preaching of the word in a worship service. I, I don't get it. When we were raising our kids, man, and we, of course, they had to be here because um, I was. But, I mean, we wanted them in worship, looking at people around them who were teaching them on Wednesday night or Sunday morning, seeing them worship, seeing their mom worship, being bored by their dad most of the time. But that's beside the point. But, that, but they were here. That was important to us. We wanted them to be around people that, that were mentoring them and loving them. And that way we wanted them to see that. So I'm, I'm saying to you, parents, come to church. If you're junior high, senior high kids, they're on retreat this weekend, the senior high are, but I mean, you, you, you worship with them. And then they go to Bible study, which brings me to point number three. So do you. Um, we talk about we've got to think biblically, we've got to know the scripture, and, and, and I, I would say, I would challenge you to go either serve in Sunday school as a children's worker, and we have scores and scores of people every week that do that. Thank you. Or, or, or occasionally break off, and everybody goes to adult Bible school. We have, we have qualified people who love the scripture, who've studied hard to teach the Bible. You sit there with other people, you discuss it, you think about it, you ponder it. I, you're here. You're, 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 you're showered, you're, you put on, you know, deodorant, you're, you're here. Why, why not go to Bible study? Why not sit and, and talk about the scripture? I, I just think, it's, and, and yet, a lot of people just don't do that. I mean, the Chick-fil-A you bought yesterday is in the fridge waiting on you. Waffle House is open if you don't want to do Chick-fil-A 24-7. You're here. I'm just saying that we need to be people who understand the importance of developing a Christian mind in a winsome, broken, loving, embracive fashion in this culture. And, and, and we've got to work hard, guys. We've got to think about how to strategically equip one another, equip our people. And, and I'm saying that the Lord's Day is a primary means of doing that. So develop deep convictional courage. That's why I pray. I pray. God bless you. Lord, thanks for the day. Thanks so much for the privilege of worship. Man, these baptisms were so energizing. So energizing. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the way we're able to hear music and sing today. And thank you for the gift of, of music. Thank you for the authority and the supremacy and the beauty of Jesus. Thank you for the, the sound doctrine, the pattern of words that we have received in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the pattern. It's so good, so good. And we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.